Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. This is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Um, we're going to do something a little different today in that, so Hugo and I, kind of on the course of the end of the previous week, over the weekend, kind of go back and forth on different things we want to talk about. Um, and this time, kind of Hugo, with so many different topics that were interesting that I think we're just going to make this dealer's choice. You know, you, you, you decide what you want to ask about, and I will answer whatever it is. Um, before we get going, a couple things. One, we're recording from P&T Netwear, 180 Orchard Street in Manhattan, bookstore, podcast studio. Come check us out if you can, please. Second, um, because I forget so frequently to ask you to rate and review us, I kind of want to do two things here. One, please rate and review us if you like the show. Two, um, really love it when I get emails from uh, the listeners that sort of bring up substantive points that I hadn't thought about. Um, because the whole point of doing this podcast, I mean, we don't have ads, we don't make money on it or anything like that, um, is just to be able to kind of tease out new ideas, new concepts, talk them through. You know, the podcast influences my writing, teaching, speaking, ideas investing. we put out there, investing, <laughs> the ideas we put out in the world, public policy, philanthropy. And so this is a really useful process for me in a lot of the other work that we do. Um, and so I love when uh, when people sort of do weigh in with their own thoughts. So a special shout out to Natalie Cohn this week. Um, really interesting comments, both on, on DeSantis and on uh, meta um, that I really enjoyed reading. So uh, it's uh, info at firewall.media. So if, if you do want to actually talk about any of the things that we are uh, usually interested in, you know, shoot me a note and we'd love to hear it. Okay, let's, Natalie uh, talked about DeSantis and she had a, a fairly complex point, which maybe we um, could talk about for a second about, about him sort of declaring war on Disney and this weird Yeah, I, um, I think it actually le leads in reasonably well. So your your question, as I recall it, is, you were focused on the six-week abortion ban in Florida, but Disney is, it's not quite the same because abortion just occupies a unique position in American society and politics as an issue, but it, it fits into it. So you, your question, as I recall it, was basically, is DeSantis moving so far right that he's going to be impossibly positioned for the general election, right, should he win the, the primary? Yes. So a few things. So one, you know, Trump's very resilient. You know, his numbers are really very, very good. Uh, and, and he's not, they're not great nationally among voters as a whole, but among hardcore Republican primary voters, they remain very strong, one. Two, um, this brag indictment is helping Trump quite a bit among that constituency. More than you expected, or is that about in line? Um, I think it's completely correlated with the strength of the indictment. So I think because it feels like such a nonsense bullshit indictment, it is helping him a lot. Now, look, if he gets indicted in Fulton County uh, in a few weeks for election tamp tampering, that's a different story. Um, but so there's that. But the real question is, OK, so we know that when candidates get forced to move too far left or right in a primary in order to win the primary, sometimes they then have trouble kind of coming back to the middle of the general election, and that ultimately dooms their candidacy. So the question is, let's assume DeSantis does, for whatever reason, kind of make it through the Republican primary. He's taking these very, very, very right-wing positions, whether it's banning all abortion after six weeks in Florida or basically trying to fight with Disney, which is kind of America's most beloved corporation. Well, I guess Apple's America's most beloved corporation, yeah. but it's two. up there um, over, you know, there being, you know, pro-gay in different ways. Um, and so, look, the, the instinctual thing to say is, yes, of course, if you go too far on one side, it's going to hurt your ability to come back to the middle, of course. I was thinking about this a, a little more, and it's—so Trump— 
couldn't have possibly gone any further right than he did in the Republican primary in 2016, and yet he still won, right? Part of the reason why everyone assumed that he would lose the general was because he went so far right in the primary. There's, there's no way that this could possibly fly with general election voters, and yet it did. So the question is, if it's a Trump-Biden matchup in 2024, um, what's different from 2016 that would potentially lead to a different outcome? So the, the first is the absence of Hillary Clinton, right? She is just a very polarizing, divisive figure. And so as many people voted against her as for Trump and even more damaging to her, a lot of people just didn't show up, right? They right. just didn't, they didn't probably understand quite how bad Trump could be. Um, and they didn't show up, especially African-American turnout. I think she just sort of assumed that because her husband attracted really strong black voters, and obviously Obama attracted record numbers of black voters, that she would just they enjoy the, the same her, thing because right. she was his secretary of state and the other one's wife and this and that. And the reality is they just didn't turn out at especially high numbers, and that was enough to make the difference in a lot of states. So Biden is not popular. I mean, his numbers are not great at all. He seems to be hovering around a 38% approval rating um, in, in the average of the polls that you tend to see. But I don't think people sort of, other than people who are already very far right and already would hate him no matter what, you know, really have tremendous antipathy towards him. So as a result, um, I don't know that uh, he is as as vulnerable um, as Hillary was in the sense of people just saying, you know what, the opponent might be a right-wing nut, but I really can't stand the Democrat. So that's number one. The other thing that's different is abortion, right? So um, we have seen, I think, uh, material impact on elections since Dobbs, right? The the House was expected to go wildly pro-GOP. They were looking at, you know, talking about a, a gain of, net gain of 30 seats, and they ended up with, I think, a net gain of five. Barely, barely set the House. McCarthy could barely win his speakership. Democrats held the Senate. No one expected that to happen at all. Um, you've seen elections like uh, the referendum in Kansas where— uh, extremely red state, and yet overwhelmingly uh, the right to abortion was protected and, and upheld. We're seeing that in other states as well. And so um, the question is, how much of a voting issue is this? I, I think it's a very significant voting issue. Um, I don't really understand why DeSantis felt like a six-week ban would position him so much better with Republican voters than a 15-week ban. Um, but, but I do think that this is the issue that people really do come out and vote on. So I would say that um, DeSantis is definitely um, probably in worse shape than Trump was in 2016 in terms of his positioning vis-a-vis -vis the general election. With that said, there was an interesting piece, I think it was by Frank Luntz the other day in the Times. Frank is a, a very famous pollster. He had done all kinds of focus groups and work with um, really hardcore Republican voters, and his message was, those voters might be open to someone other than Trump, but they need the same message, right? They need the same policies. And if that's true, you know, it's a pretty tough spot, right? Because you, you obviously everyone says, well, it's better to be in the general win the primary than not, so do whatever you got to do. That's accepted wisdom, sort of true. Um, but at the same time, if you don't have the luxury of Hillary Clinton, who's just so unlikable as your opponent— and you, abortion now is, you know, it was a theoretical risk that, that became true, right? Trump won. He appointed right-wing judges. That did lead to the uh, overturn no, of the It's real credibility on that Trump in, in, a, in a weird way. Yeah, but at the same time, it was still theoretical in 2016. In 2024, it happened, right? right. So I think it's very different. So I, I, I think that DeSantis um, 
is going to have a much harder time. With that said, I mean, we've been saying this for a while now, which is, you know, being in the pole position two years out is not a great place to be, you know. No, so, and he definitely doesn't seem to have the kind of like personality. I don't know if it's flexibility. I mean, there's something about Trump, his ability to to just tack in, in like sort of on a dime that was so effective, obviously, against Hillary. Like you say he was like, you know, in the primary had gone very far right, which is obviously true. But I wonder if like his sort of performative thing that he did against Hillary was almost like it was like on a whole nother level in a sense that that you don't see DeSantis being capable yeah, no, of. No, look, look, Trump's political talent in a, in a dem demagogic way is undeniable. It's world class. It's historically great. And no, it doesn't seem like DeSantis has that. So the question becomes, let's just say that all of the kind of Trump copycats, Pompeo, Pence, all these other people are just sort of, you know, not going to succeed uh, because Trump is ultimately more popular than he is, than they are. Um, is there someone else that could break through on the Republican side that could both be viable in the primary and the general? I know you're sitting here thinking that Gail, 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know, you are, you are her, you are her campaign manager on this podcast. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's hard. I don't see, I mean, I, I, I know feel you like, don't really want that job. I feel like in many ways she's running for vice president. Um, I think in every way. Yeah, and and, and by the way, that might work out yeah, for her. Yeah, she's going to get that. Um, so the question is... You know, some, you, you, if you look at Kamala Harris, you think, God, could I get that job? Could I have her job? You just, could, could someone like... You're right, exactly. What an amazing job. <laughs> could someone like a Youngkin... I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like he has the personality to break through in a, in a different way. Don't you but, think but if we'll you see. could possibly wait out Trump, you would? Like, if you're Youngkin, don't you think, like, look, he's not going to be around the next time? Well, no, or you just wait to the last minute to jump into the primaries because Youngkin is really wealthy. If he doesn't have to, if he can finance the opening of the campaign by himself, they throw $100 million of his own money into it. Um, now, he can't be as late as... Is like, he that he, rich that a, he could... I, I mean, I know he has more Carlisle. than $100 million, but like... So, yeah, I would imagine Spending $100 so. million, you got I mean, but you're, you're spending it in a gamble to believe that you could be the most powerful person in the world. So that's, yep. that's yep. a good way so to spend the, reason to spend the money. So anyway, I, I, I do think that... Um, there, there are a few fundamental differences between today and 2016 that will make it harder for the Republican, whether it's Trump or DeSantis or anyone else. Well, let me bring in this David Brooks column. He wrote about the kind of blue city, red state phenomenon, which we've talked about on the podcast yeah. before. And his take on it was that, it, he, I think he uses the word, uh, the term mashup, that, that there's this kind of like new mixture of sort of Democrat or liberal local politics and a kind of state level, low taxes, like pro business climate. That is, I, he doesn't quite go as far to say that it's the future of the of the of the sort of political of politics in America. But when will we see, or will we see that in twenty twenty four sort of express itself nationally? What effect could it have? Um, look, I mean, I think that it kind of gets to the point we just had, obviously, around the primaries, which is what he's really saying is people who are not hardcore ideologues, who are not evangelical Christian Republicans, who are not socialist Democrats, whatever it is, generally speaking, the American view would be we generally believe in, in liberty, right? And that should include sort of, you know, more tolerance for people with, with different views and, and, and things like that, which is kind of a more socially liberal perspective. And we believe in money and business and everyone believes that they could get rich. Um, which means that people tend to not be instinctively for really high taxes and endless regulations. And so the, the argument he's taking, I think, is where the majority of Americans are on most things. Um, the problem, as we've discussed a billion times on this podcast, is 
because of gerrymandering, the only election that matters is the primaries because primary turnout is so low, typically 10 to 15 percent. The only people who vote are the hardcore leftists or rightists. Um, and as a result, the only way to win the primaries is to position yourself as a hardcore ideologue on either side of the aisle, um, which then means that the policies that are then pursued are counter to what people actually want, right? So in Albany, you have a legislature that believes that, you know, the bail laws are perfectly appropriate as is, and crime is, it's okay if crime keeps going up because that's less societally harmful than the institutional impact of systemic racism and, and that produces crime in the first place in their point of view, right? Or it doesn't matter how high taxes are because they don't really want rich people in their state anyway, right? Um, it, for as long as those are the people mainly voting in state senate primaries and state assembly primaries, then you know, that's going to be the predominant view in Albany. That's going to then lead to more and more state policies that are hostile to a lot of people, which is going to lead more and more people to go into Florida or Texas or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, it just, and by the way, it can go the other way too, right? You, you could see a world where, you know, people in Miami who moved to Miami or Palm Beach or whatever, like, you know what? I don't want to live in a fucking state where abortion is illegal after six weeks and they move somewhere else. And it might not be they move back to, a blue state, they just may move to a different red state or a more of a purple state. So look, it's just the same problem always, which is for as long as we are stuck in a system where a very small group of people effectively control all of our policies and all of the on all of our outcomes, we are always going to be in a world where most people aren't happy. You um, you mentioned crime there. Did you read the uh, the Times story on shoplifting? Um, no, I, I saw it. And I just <laughs> didn't want to read it. I don't have a better answer than that. Well, the, what was interesting and what 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 corresponds to your point um, on on crime, which is is that the you know what, what they what they found in this one report was that the amount of shoplifting done by a relatively small number of people is is huge and mm -hmm. and there's a kind of disproportionate um, role that a few people play in it and what, what it suggests is that there are in fact these professional criminals who are so maybe letting them out of jail 30 minutes after they get arrested is not the best way to go. I think that was the upshot, yes. But yeah, but the Times is never going to have the boss to actually embrace that position in their editorials. Yeah, well, I, I, I guess I guess they're... I guess God forbid someone tweets something negative about one of them. <laughs> about someone in the New York Times? Yeah, unless it's someone from the far right. I don't... I, don't, I, I, think, I think the Times opinion page is, is definitely drifting more to the center than you do, but... but uh, in fairness, you know what? I read some of the op-ed columns... I never, ever, ever read the opinion page itself. So right. Well, I don't know that anybody does. They could yeah. have shifted wildly right, and I oh, you wouldn't no know. You idea. wouldn't know. Yeah. So, uh, one, uh, uh, a journalist that we both enjoy reading, uh, Derek Thompson in the in the Atlantic, uh, was writing about. Uh, he called it the dangerous rise of front yard politics. Many public crusaders are private reactionaries, which yeah. is kind of the whole story right there. But it, but it, it is, it is, and again, this is something we talk about from pretty frequently, but the idea that there's this kind of performative aspect of yeah. one's politics. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, totally. Uh, that people want to put the signs in the windows. They want to, they want yeah, to. Hate has no place here, all this shit. Right. Or like yesterday, I went to the Cooper Hewitt Museum, right? And, you know. What, was, what was the thing that drew you there? Um, Is there a good exhibit? You know what? There was an exhibit. So you and I liked that book, The Last Kings of Shanghai. And yeah. there was an exhibit about the Sassoons at the Jewish Museum, which is across the street yeah, from yeah, the Cooper yeah. Hewitt. So I went to see the Sassoons exhibit. 
um, which was okay. Um, I'm a, kind of just like a groupie now about the Kadaris and Sessions. Um, <laughs> I like it. There's not, a lot I, of, there's not a lot of people in that group, though. No, like 12 people. Yeah. Um, and then I just walked into the Cooper Hewitt. And uh, just every, it, it just felt like you had these sort of white, affluent, young curators who have never had to like, actually create a job or make money in their lives. And every exhibition was just about like, how, here's how woke the curators are, right? And I hate sounding like some sort of like old right-wing man. At the Cooper Hewitt, you notice this? Yeah. I, I, and so... Um, and the so Cooper the, Hewitt, for those who don't know, is a design museum. The, um, yeah, on the Upper East Side of New York. And it's, it's there was, a, you know, but basically it was like, here's how W.E.B. Du Bois protested racism at the World's Fair in 1900. And then here, there was like literally even something about like asteroid politics or something like that. And like how there was discrimination in that, like astrophysical politics. Like basically point point being- What do those subjects have to do with design? The, the, nothing, nothing. Right. It was a bad experience and I would not recommend anyone go to the Cooper Hewitt. <laughs> um, but the, the point is, Thompson is right, which is the curators there strike me as the people who have these signs in their front lawns, who tweet and talk about how righteous they are and how virtuous they are. And you know what? Here's what I know. Every Thursday morning at 8 a.m., I go to the soup kitchen on 16th between 2nd and 3rd. I make the buttered bread. I make the coffee. I make the tea. I chop vegetables. And I talk to the people who work there, who volunteer there, because I've been volunteering with them now for that same group of people for over a decade. Not one of them would consider themselves like a, a socialist, a leftist, a woke. No one has ever walked in that I've noticed to help who seems to espouse any of those values at all. So the people who actually do something in the world to help people, who sacrifice their time to make sure that those who need help, in need, who don't have enough food to eat, can get food to eat, and these are people who both make the food, clean up, um, and often will help you know, pay for things out of their own pocket as well. Um, that's not reflective at all of the performative politics that we see in people's front yards. And the reason I have so much disdain for the far left is yeah, I mean, let's say that, that there's 20% of issues that I don't agree on with the far left. There's probably 80% of stuff that we do agree on. So help me fucking pass universal school meals. You're not even helping me pass fucking shields for doctors so they can prescribe abortion meds to women in red states through telemedicine. It's like you just focus on moral purity and the 20% that you disagree on. And this is why I hate the Times editorial board so much because there's, there's the, the most ex ex highest example of this. And it's like... You could actually use your moment to try to get shit done, and instead, in 20 years, we're going to look back and say there was this progressive movement and moment that accomplished remarkably little because it had been all their time navel-gazing um, and fighting amongst each other and accomplishing very little. You expressed a, a desire to run through a couple of good news stories. You want to do that yeah, now? Yeah, I just thought, um, like, it's so, you know, everything <laughs> always feels so terrible that there were, just, you know, a couple of things struck me at the same time over a couple of day period that okay. I thought were really You incredible. filed them away. Yeah, so one one was the Biden uh, EPA proposal uh, that all cars or two-thirds of cars be electric by, I think, 2035. And so 20, 2032. 2032. Uh, and, yeah, uh, two-thirds of cars and a quarter of new heavy trucks, yeah. all electric by 2032. And the reason that's so significant is, one, it's a huge shift. We're only still like 6% electric cars right now, so we're talking like another 60%. Um, but according to at least the articles that I read, that redu corresponding reduction in emissions would allow the U.S. to actually meet 
the climate change goals that are set out, where if every country were to reduce their emissions by that amount, we would avoid some of the most catastrophic effects of climate change. Um, that's really good. Now, where it's all going to go, I don't know. I think one of the reasons that they that they kind of pushed a rule out there that was so hardcore was to have room to negotiate back and still achieve something. But, you know, I, I think at least when it comes to climate, the Biden administration is, is transformational. And you like this approach, because I, 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 I could see you coming the other way on it, maybe maybe not on this particular issue, but setting this like incredibly high bar on the federal level, that's the way to go? Yeah, just because in case, you, can't, like, you can't get anything. Well, just it's the only practical solution because you can't get anything through Congress, right? So, you know, there are certain issues like emissions um, that are generally federal. There are states like California that have set their own emissions policies, but but generally speaking, these these are federal decisions and they impact tax policy and, and the, the policies around, you know, the physical construction of cars that the DOT sets and NTSB and things like that. So, um, so yeah, I think some of this stuff has to only get done through, can only get done through the federal government. And I think using the power of the executive branch, by the way, even if it doesn't hold, and we saw that, right? Obama put a lot of sort of pro-climate, you know, mitigation policies in place. Trump overturned all of them. Biden overturned the Trump ones. Biden's put in even more aggressive ones than Obama did. Another reason why I think it's really important that Biden be reelected is so that these things continue. Um, whether that was really promising. Wait, um, can we stop yeah. just on this issue? Because I'm curious, in, in uh, at, at Tusk Ventures, how often do you look at sort of EV-related stuff? Not that much. It's, it's a, the problem for us has been it is a very capital-intensive business, mm -hmm. right? And we invest, you know, early stage, seed, series A, and write checks from $1 to $7 million, right? And we really just can't move the needle on, on a big climate infrastructure deals. Right. Those are multi-billion dollar funds with a totally different return profile. Those are funds that are just trying to you know, generate steady but lower returns but over a long period of time um, as opposed to us where we're swinging for the fences on every pitch and trying to hit a, you know, hit, return the fund with every single investment. So we're, we look at stuff, but generally speaking, it, we're not the right investors for most of it. Um, so we haven't done, done much in that space. Um, and then Alzheimer's. Uh, yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah, so now yeah. we're switching. Next. We're switching. Okay, yeah. go ahead. So <laughs> there was MIT. More good news. More good news, yeah. came out with a, a study that said that they have found a way to significantly reduce the development of an enzyme called CPK5, which I had never heard of until I read this article, that leads to a lot of the neurogeneration of the brain uh, and dementia that's caused in Alzheimer's. And if they can reduce the pace of that by slowing down the growth of this enzyme, um, that will significantly weaken the ability of, of these enzymes to create uh, you know, major memory loss and functioning loss in people, which ultimately will lead to far fewer cases of Alzheimer's. So like, that's fucking huge, man. Like, because this is a this is a issue that there really hasn't been much significant progress on in decades. And so there have been some head fakes. Yeah, uh, a few, but but ultimately nothing really that material. And so I thought that was great news, right? Uh, the third one was the head of the Wagner Group in Russia, which is this kind of crazy. Mercenary. Did you know what the Wagner Group was before you mm -hmm. sent me that? I know they were before saying that, not before the war in the Ukraine. Okay. But they're like, what was the group? Blackwater was like the U.S. version of yeah, that, Blackwater. right? Yeah, Blackwater. Yeah, sure. You know, we're basically, they're mercenaries. Lovely companies. And they were taking people out of Russian prisons and putting them on the front lines. It's good work. To fight the war. Good business. Um, yeah, it's interesting business. Um, so wait, would they buy their freedom? How did they do that? You could trade your, your prison sentence for a military term. Uh, um, and obviously 
lots, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Russians have been killed on the front line. So you, you might have actually been better off in prison, but yeah, Russian, Russian prison, prison yeah. doesn't sound so great either. Yeah. Um, but the point is, the head of the Wagner Group publicly called for an end to the war. Right? So this is a guy who is making incredible amounts of money from the war itself, clearly is completely controlled by Putin. Um, and if he's putting it out there, so you know, and look, and he's not saying he's saying they should keep the territories that yeah, they've yeah, taken. No, he's and not all a that. Yeah. He's not, but but with that said, he's not Gandhi. It seems to me that that one of two things is happening: either a Putin is starting to sort of put out feelers through third parties, right, which right. is encouraging, yep. or Putin's power is weakening to the point where people like him feel comfortable publicly taking an oppositional position, um, because ultimately if Putin loses power, then presumably the next person in charge says, you know what, this war is highly expensive, it's going really poorly, it's highly unpopular, I'm going to end it, right? So um, either way, I thought sort of a positive sign towards the potential end of that war. I like those. Those are three very different... Yeah, but all good, right? Yeah, all good. Yeah. And then there was the ice cream story in the Atlantic about how possibly That's ice cream best. is better for so, you. Than, that doctors don't want to admit it. Researchers don't want to validate it. But it may be true. So if ice cream—all right, so let's, let's start with this. Okay. If if you had to rank the top desserts, where's ice cream for you? Oh, number one. Number one, yeah. right? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Do you I, think that would be just generally the case? What do you mean? In like, in like, like the, in cake, the... cookies, pies, well, you, puddings. You mean for Americans or for yeah. the world? Either one. Yeah, I mean, just for pure immediate bang for your buck. I mean, there are good cakes and good pies, and those things are nice. But like, you don't see like pie shops as many places as you see ice cream ice shops. Fucking delicious. Yeah, people right. like ice cream. So people love ice cream, right? right. Um, I would eat it at every single meal if I could. Right. Um, What's stopping you now that we know that's good for you? Well, that's the question. <laughs> so. I have actually, since reading that article, had a little more ice cream. So Lyle and I went to the Lyle and I went to the movies on Saturday. Uh, I wanted milk duds. They don't, I don't know why they don't stock milk duds in Union Square anymore. Oh, milk duds are gross. Oh, I love milk duds, oh but my God. but they didn't have them, and I I didn't like any other candy options. And I got a frozen Snickers ice cream bar. Oh, that was probably great. It, you know, wasn't that great? I think if it was, I would have liked it much more frozen. It was oh, kind of falling it's a apart. Soft. Yeah. So, you know, um, but the point is, I think the reason why I felt okay doing it was because of that article. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then the, the, it's, it's had exactly the impact that doctors feared, you know, that we would just rush out, be like, with any sort of like positive signal, we'd start immediately eating more ice cream. So. What's your go to order? Oh, at the, at, for ice cream or yeah. the movies? Oh, I, I, coffee and peanut butter are my favorite flavors. And peanut sort of, butter? Yeah, and sort of variations. You can't get that a lot of those. various places. No, but but there are some places that you, you can, and they're, they're really they good. They have a good, where is it? There, God, I had a peanut butter and jelly ice cream somewhere recently that was very, very good. I can't remember where. I think it was at a restaurant. So Yeah, and I did have a tofu sandwich for lunch later that day. All right. Make up for <laughs> tofu it a sandwich. Yeah. And God. salmon for dinner, so it all comes Oh, there you go. It, it even that. Okay, we're going to close with two things. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about the expansion of baseball. And the only reason is really just have fun talking about cities. So there's, yeah. there's five cities, and I want to throw a caveat in there before I ask you to rank them. So the five cities that they're considering expanding into are um, Nashville, Salt Lake City, Portland, Charlotte, Six, I guess. Nashville, Salt Lake City, Portland, Charlotte, Montreal, and Las Vegas. Okay. Um, okay, let's stipulate that Las Vegas is getting one, I think. You think Be so? I, well, I think they are because the... I mean, they might not get an expansion team because maybe the A's will move there. But, like, obviously, everybody wants a team in Las Vegas now. So, so it's interesting. So a few things. So one is... Yes, the Raiders moved there, and I'm not a hockey fan, but you are. The Golden Knights seem very successful. Yeah, there, huge. Right? Yeah, they're, they're doing great. Yeah. Um, 
It's fucking hot in Vegas, right? But so they you have to play minor league baseball there. I mean, it's not like... Not, not fondly. Oh, right? really? <laughs> like, I think you <laughs> would have fondly. to... Um, I mean, the, the Mets the, had their team there for years, Yeah, right? and they moved them out because it was, too, it was too hot. hot. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so I think... I didn't know that. That you, you're just, you'd have to just be consigned to playing in a dome the whole time, right? Maybe, I don't even know if you'd bother making the roof retractable because it's so much money to create a retractable roof. And the amount of times you're going to be able to have it open would be so few. Like, whenever I have been to a game in Houston or Phoenix or Miami, the roof's closed, right? I've never been to any of those ballparks where the roof's oh, right? open. Yeah, because it's just so goddamn hot. It's just too fucking hot. Yeah, I'm not even sure if Houston's retracted, but I know Miami, Phoenix do. Um, and so I think in Vegas, if you're just willing to say we're just going to play indoors and that's that, okay. Um, but then is tourism as high in Vegas over the summer? It can't be. It can't be. Right. So the question is, a lot of people in the customer base are for football. It's perfect, right? Eight games. Right. But even hockey is what forty. Um, it, and it's a stadium that would be half the size. What did they see? 20,000 people probably. It was at the T-Mobile arena. Um, so baseball stadium, let's call it 40 to 50,000 people, 81 home games. I, I don't know. In, You're a, not in, bullish a, on, in a time on... where there's going to be less tourism because of the heat, I'm not super bullish on Vegas. I also just fucking hate Vegas, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, I don't yeah. ever want to be there. Um, so, <laughs> so let's go through them. So Nashville makes sense to me, right? It's a really, really fast-growing city. Um, I know that they have had a serious operation around trying to attract a franchise. Their hockey team does quite well. You know, every NFL team does well, including including theirs. The the what are they called? The Titans. Titans. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, warm but not wildly so. So I, I think Nashville clearly. Um, I agree. Could work, and then also Vanderbilt, which is in Nashville, is actually a really good baseball school. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think there's already a, kind of a built-in thing there. Um, what else on the Salt Lake City? I think Salt Lake could work. You know, I really do. Um, the Jazz is, are incredibly popular there. Um, it is a city that is growing exponentially. Um, it has become something of a tech city, Silicon Slopes, they call it. Um, do you know, invest in any companies in Utah? We haven't, but we've looked at a, a, a couple. Um, and so, you know, I, I, th I think it's possible. Um, and the weather there is kind of, you know, temperate during the summer, so that, that would be okay. Um, Montreal, I love Montreal as a city, right? It's amazing. Yeah, but, but they couldn't do it. So, right. like, what what about the failed experiment the first time makes you think that it would be better? It also time? just feels like, yeah, Montreal, of all the charms, it doesn't really need a baseball team to increase the attractiveness of the city. For, right. For me to go to Montreal, right, I don't need a baseball team, right? Yeah. Um, so, um, okay, so that means on the, list? Uh, the one you didn't mention is the most boring on there, Charlotte. I mean, I, who even, do you go to Charlotte ever? You know, I've never been outside the airport. Oh, really? I've been uh, to other parts of North Carolina, but and I've been through the Charlotte Airport a bunch of times because it is kind of, it's a hub, but never once ventured outside. Um, no, but, you know, at the same time, if we live in a world to the point of the David Brooks column where America has basically moved down to the Sun Belt, if there's there enough... There should be more teams, yeah. Yeah, if there's enough wealth there to sustain a team, then why not put it there? And was Portland one of them? Portland is one of them, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the Trailblazers are really, really a popular and sort of a cool franchise, even though they don't actually ever win the title or anything like that. Well, they did in, what, 78? Yeah, with, with Walton, <laughs> you know, right. That was the best. Still, by the way, if anyone's looking for a book recommendation... Break, breaks of the Game. Breaks of the Game by David Hobsham is the best sports book I have ever read. It's about the 78 Blazers. Oh, really? That's the best one? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's a really good book. I, I'm going to come 
come back next week with with uh, some alternatives to that as the best. But I definitely yeah. I definitely agree it's excellent. Um, and I just don't know if the local economy there is strong enough to do it. If it is, sure. People, I mean, I haven't been to Portland since the pandemic, but people say it's pretty fucked up. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to know because the people saying that have you know kind of a. A dog in the fight, as they say. They're the ones moving to Austin, Nashville, <laughs> Charlotte. Okay, yeah. do you have a recommendation this week? Yeah, I saw okay. uh, Lyle and I saw the movie Air. Oh, you did? Saturday, yeah. Okay. And, well, that's when I had the Snickers okay. uh, oh, good. ice cream that was you know, It's all good, coming together. Not, not the enough. good news. Um, you know, I thought it was for a movie that was A, a business movie. It wasn't a sports movie. Right. right? It was a business movie. And B... There's no suspense because you know what happened, right? Yeah. This is the sneaker becomes what kind of successful? Yeah, a little bit, right? Yeah. So like this is recent history, highly visible. We know what happened. So considering that there was effectively no suspense, and it was about the whole movie was just business meetings, basically, right? How annoying was Ben Affleck? He was all right. He was. You know, I have to say, was anybody I, annoying? No, okay. Matt Damon was great. Matt Sonny Damon's Picaro. never annoying. Uh, Chris Tucker was great. Jason Bateman's always good. Yeah. Uh, Viola Davis played Dolores Jordan. She was excellent. Um, no, I have to say, I, I think I'm kind of an Affleck defender in the sense that he has directed four, including this one, four or five really good movies, right? I love The Town. The, the Town. Yeah, that's good. Gone Baby Gone. Um, Argo, which won a Best Picture. Argo's terrible. Yeah, but it was still, <laughs> it wasn't terrible. It just wasn't the best movie that year. Okay. Um, this, and so for a guy that gets You know it was the best movie that year. What was that year? Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, right. That was a much better movie. That's true. Yeah. Um, Hugo was involved in that movie. but I was not involved in Zero Dark Thirty. You weren't? No, I worked with But they with were your friends. friends. They're my friends. Yeah. Uh, but even with... Even when that said, it wasn't. It was a better movie. But the point is, this. for a guy who gets a lot of shit, and it's funny during the previews. Um, so DC Comics, I guess, in their desperation now, and every super hu- superhuman, is that right? Superhero movie they put out, just Batman's now in it, right? No matter what, because yeah, he's the so only lame, popular right? one they have. <laughs> and so there was like a Flash movie or something, and Batman's in it. And it's Ben Affleck. And Lyle, I don't think he even realized Ben Affleck both was in and had directed the movie we were there to see, that Lyle was excited to go see, said, oh, Ben Affleck's the worst Batman. He had, like, the, ben Affleck doesn't, it does, evokes this instinctual opposition and negative reaction. Um, but I thought he was really good as, as Phil Knight. Um, and I thought the movie was excellent. And does it work as a business story in that, like, as a business person, you see that and you're like, you don't feel like it's dumbed down or, like, kind of I mean, stupid? of course or, it's dumbed down. But, right. like, but ultimately, you know, what it said is it, you got to sometimes just take big risks and do things differently and go with your gut to have nonlinear success, right? We talk about this a lot on this podcast, which is linear success is sort of doing things the way they've always been done and doing them well, right? right. And so that's, you know, investment banking, management, consulting, law, things, fields like that, where it's like, there's plenty of room to make money and there's plenty of room to sort of achieve status. Um, but generally speaking, it's it's by doing things the way they've always been done, but just a little better than the way the other people are doing them, right? Whereas, you know, what Nike did, both in the way that Phil Knight created the company kind of from a running shoe perspective, which was totally different at the time than what anyone else was doing, and then basically like betting the whole farm on Michael Jordan, right? Their whole basketball business. Which seems down. obvious now, but like. But, you know, right. But but at the time, um, yeah, I mean, they, I think the view is if they could sell like a couple of million shoes, they figured it would work out for them. They have uh, averaged $4 billion a year in sales or something like that over the last 40 years uh, in Jordan-related stuff. So uh, it's worked out pretty well for them. So the point is, you know, yes, obviously, 
um, in hindsight, it's easy to say he is the you know greatest basketball player of all time and incredibly you know culturally significant as well, and therefore, of course. But you know, he was a third pick in the draft, and and you didn't know that at the time, right? That he was going to be that good, um, and yet it all kind of came together really well. So yes, um, I think that if I definitely see a disparity, like among my students, for example, or not disparity, um, cognitive dissonance is probably the right word, where people want nonlinear outside success. They want the glory. They want you can't make really big money through linear success. Usually, how you do something nonlinear, right? They want the money. They want the fame. They want the glory. They want the credit. They want the attention, but they don't want the risk, and they don't want the your, their stomach churning. You know, part of what what was interesting about Phil Knight in the movie Ben Affleck was. It was his money, you know? Like, Sonny Vaccaro, sure, his job was on... Sonny Vaccaro was the guy at Nike who sort of pushed for and saw the whole opportunity with Jordan and sold the Jordan family on doing it. Um, and his job was on the line for sure, but it was one guy's job, right? right. Knight has his whole company, right? And it's public, board directors, billion dollars in sales. And he had to make a, a very, very nonlinear bet. And a lot of the movie was him super stressed out, right? <laughs> like really worried about it, you know? And like that's That's basically the drama of the movie is like Sonny Vicaro stressing out. Phil Knight stressing I'm out. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Phil Knight. That's a lot right, of yeah, it, yeah. 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 And, and you know, in some ways, though, part of what I, you know, try to tell my students people talk to, which is like, look, nonlinear success, if you can achieve it, obviously is better than linear success because it's more meaningful and it's, it's more lucrative and more everything. But... Your stomach is fucking roiling the whole time, right? Even when you're good at this stuff, like I have a super high risk tolerance, and I still have to go through emotional, you know, turmoil all the time when I try to do things that are really different and risky and controversial. Um, it, if you have the stomach for it, it's fucking hard. If you don't have the stomach for it, it's, it's impossible. impossible. Yeah, yeah. And I think one thing that is important for people to do is just be a little honest with yourself in some ways like I see this um, on the venture side right which is young founders come to me and pitch me on their idea and so frequently you know what's going through my head is like look it's a pretty good idea it probably be a pretty successful business um, it's not a billion dollar technology company it's not a, it's not going to change any social cultural norms in any way you should do whatever most people do which is fucking bootstrap the business and and take a lot of risk and and make it happen on your own but you don't really need venture money to do this because this is that, that's not the outcome here. But they've been raised to believe that it, having venture investment is cool, right? And therefore, if they want to be you know, the next Elon Musk or whatever it is, this is the path that they need to pursue when the reality is, look, the odds of you being the next Elon Musk are basically zero, but could your business ultimately produce a $4 million a year EBITDA for you that, that you take home every single year and have a really nice life? Absolutely, right? And so... We've created um, these these kind of stereotypes around risk, uh, reward, nonlinear success, linear success, um, and I think that they are often a disservice to young people because they don't um, know ultimately that the best thing to do is whatever fits their personality the best, whatever fits their style the best, because at the end of the day, e even if you achieve something outside at work, if you're miserable the whole fucking time, so what? Yeah. Um, that's a good point to end on. Um, are we reading Jenny O'Dell for next week? Is you, do you want to do that? Did you so here's, it? I guess I could have had this in my anti-woke screed a couple of minutes ago. Oh, um, <laughs> oh no. So I'm about, a third <laughs> no of the, I'm about a third of the way into it. 
And what I was hoping for and what I thought I was going to get from the reviews were some really different perspectives on the usage of time, the passage of time, ways to think about time. And so far, it's just been, you know, an anti-capitalist greed. Right? Oh, really? Like, here is why capitalists exploit the time of laborers, which, by the way, may all be totally true and correct. But now that I've read 120 pages of that, like, if it doesn't get into something a little more original and interesting pretty soon, I'm out. Okay. Well, let me know. Okay. Okay. See you. See you next week.